Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, obviously the number one topic across America, the assassination of the two uh, New York City Police Department officers and whether or not the movement that was about reform and you know, balancing the rights of citizens versus the police doing their job has now turned into something very ugly and anti-cop. You know, I think a lot of the movement was always, uh, frankly, kind of ugly and anti-cop. I think there were intellectuals and policy types who, you know, had serious questions about some possible criminal justice reforms. But I'm afraid in the streets, uh, both the leaders in the streets and the demonstrators in the streets, it was always much, uh, a much different tone. And, and I think we've, you know, unfortunately, uh, not to blame them, obviously, for the uh, killing of the policeman. That, that's something that the killer has to be blamed for. But the mood that was created, the climate that was created, and the failure of people uh, on that side to repudiate some who led the mobs and some who incited the mobs, and, the, and indeed the, the actions of some uh, on the anti-police side uh, in terms of just painting uh, policemen everywhere with such a broad brush, uh, I think they have a lot to answer for. And it's a shame that you've had this uh, uh, contingent, let's say, in the uh, protests that's been openly anti-cop and perhaps even pro-crime because there is this other legitimate issue that's being lost. I remember when Ferguson first happened that Gary Fields over at the Wall Street Journal wrote a great piece. He's, he's black and he grew up in the rural South, and he talked about not just when he was a kid being treated differently by the cops, but when he was working for the Wall Street Journal in his business suit on his way to the journal and getting pulled and having five cops show up because, you know, he, he felt like because he was black and just, you know, this this... There is this conversation that black America has been having that I think it's important to acknowledge. But you can't even have that conversation, Bill, when you've got people chanting, kill the cops. Well, you can. And I think people who say, well, we need to get right back to that conversation now and and reach across the aisle are are really being fanciful. We need to make clear that, you know, most police do a very good job. Uh, We're on the side of the police against the criminals. Uh, There are unfortunately, you know, high rates of crime in inner-city neighborhoods and among African-Americans uh, that leads to some disparate treatment, some of which may be reasonable in some broad sense, even if it feels unpleasant and unjust to the individual, some of which may be unreasonable and should be curbed. But uh, the main conversation we have to have right now is the uh, unacceptability of people having used these one or two incidents as excuses for a much broader left-wing anti-police, anti-law enforcement, anti-law and order agenda. I was in New York last weekend, and I mean, the anger at Mayor de Blasio, these comments of his, it didn't, I guess, nationally get that much attention, maybe about his own son and what he would tell him. Whatever he tells his son, whatever in a different circumstance at a, a symposium at Columbia University wants to say 18 months from now about how we should reform policing, the idea that you say it in a heated environment of the kind we've had is just irresponsible for a public uh, official, for an elected official. You know, and uh, when you have a political leader say to his son, look, you have to worry about the police, and that's how I would summarize the mayor's comments. Mm-hmm. And, the, and President Obama has, in the past, although I think lately he's really you know, gone out of his way to be pro-cop, but early on you're kind of talking about, you know, watch out uh, for the police. This notion that the police are the suspects among us is a— not is it only just a disturbing one based on the facts, it's, it's not true, but man, what talk about a way to undermine the ability to come to some reforms if you've got one side saying, yeah, I'll sit down and deal with you because you're evil. Right. I mean, it, and it fits into so much of a broader narrative, doesn't it? I mean, that there's a, the liberal elites 
distrust and dislike the police. They distrust and dislike uh, the military. Uh, they're not big fans of uh, a lot of the institutions of our society and the people who man those institutions, and uh, which keep us safe and, and protect us. But the jobs are difficult. They're unpleasant. They have a lot of judgment calls involved, and sometimes there are individuals in those institutions who go over the line. But uh, there really is a way in which I think middle America looks at this kind of cushy, liberal, uh, elite criticism of people who are working awfully hard, not getting huge paychecks out of it, running real risks, God knows, and thinks, I mean, really, these people are entitled to just sit there and, and sort of condescend to and patronize and, and disdain these other Americans. So I think that we have a real culture gap here. It reminds me a lot of uh, the late 60s with, with Richard Nixon and the silent majority. And I think for politically, uh, there's a huge opening for, a, let's say, a Nixon-like message among uh, uh, from a Republican uh, candidates and Republican leaders. Uh, I agree. And, uh, you know, the name that creates that opportunity to me, Bill, isn't uh, Ferguson or Staten Island or whatever. It's Al Sharpton. I mean, yeah. Democrats have invited him to speak at every major, you know, Democratic National Convention for what, 30 years now, there's a photo of every prominent Democratic leader with Al Sharpton. And I think for a lot of Americans, he's the face of the that negativity, that that destructive force, if you will, in the uh, protests. Someone told me he'd been to the Obama White House 61 times, or maybe he's met with the president personally that many times. I don't know. It's pretty amazing. It's sort of like Yasser Arafat was the foreign leader who was in the Bush White House, uh, the Clinton White House the most. And how did that work out, you know, and, and especially after 9-11 and, and a different maybe attitude towards terrorism and frequenting with people who, uh, who if they were, well, who were, in the case of Arafat, were themselves terrorists, but also certainly played footsie with terrorists, even when they pretended they weren't being terrorists. There's a little bit of that about Sharpton, uh, not about terrorism, but about uh, people who have dubious records and criminal records, really, and certainly inc- uh, records of inciting uh, violence and, and, and really hatred of, of, of police and others. And so I, I think it's a, yeah, it's a legitimate question for the Democratic Party. Hillary Clinton has certainly gone to, gone to ground here and hasn't really spoken about this latest um, uh, you know, tragedy in New York, even though she was there. I went out of her way to be there at Bill de Blasio's inauguration and uh, had been a big backer of his. And, and, uh, and she is, of course, of course, a senator from New York. It's not as if she has no – she lives in New York. I mean, you'd think she might want to say something, but I don't even think she's had a pro forma statement of – sympathy for the police. I think she's it's so sensitive that she doesn't want to get in the middle of it. But that shows how hard it will be, I think, for Democrats to navigate these political waters in 2016. And think about the waters that they'll have to navigate. President Obama says we're going to do the uh, amnesty program. And whatever you think about long-term demographics in the United States, right now, amnesty is unpopular. Democrats are going to have to embrace it. Their president foisted upon America. There was no vote. There's no fig leaf. Uh, the uh, ongoing efforts now to shut down Gitmo, where we're releasing detainees and making terrible deals like the Bo Bergdahl deal and this other recent deal. Democrats are going to have that. Once again, they can't look at Republicans and say, hey, the Republicans are in on this. And then the idea that um, when it comes to police and uh, and citizens, that instead of having a reform conversation, you've got a conversation led by Al Sharpton and and somehow, you know, the deaths of police officers, however you want to look at it, they are definitely part of the context. I, I just... I think President Obama is going to leave Democrats in an even more difficult position in 2016 than they were in 2014. No, I think that's quite possible. And, you know, there's a lot of other reasons for Republicans to be pretty optimistic about 2016. Uh, the White House tends to turn over after eight years. Uh, the successor candidate to an incumbent president 
uh, tends to draw a smaller percentage of the vote, considerably smaller than the incumbent did running for re-election, so that if you just do the math, I guess President Obama got, what, 51.5% in 2012. Just if you do the average of the last four, five, six times, this kind of situation has come up with an eight-year term followed by a successor, someone trying to succeed him from his own party. The successor goes down six, seven, eight points. So there are a lot of reasons, I think, for Republicans to be optimistic. On the other hand, they need to have a positive agenda. Obviously, they can't just um, uh, assume that Al Sharpton is going to do the Democrats. Richard Nixon, to use the example I mentioned earlier, did sort of assume that in the 68 campaign and managed to start it with a 15 to 20 point lead, as I recall, after the Democrat disastrous Democratic convention in Chicago. It ended up squeaking by by one point. So uh, Republicans need to have their own agenda for the country, a broad one in economics and foreign policy and, and public policy in all kinds of areas. But I do think this gives them a little bit more of, a, of an edge to start off with. Well, let me uh, finish up with a, maybe a broader question. I want to ask that same question, but in a broader way. It seems to me that the, way, the decisions that the president has made about acting unilaterally and about trying to build his political success by hyper-motivating the base have resulted in a situation where you have issues that don't have to be you know, so bad for the Democrats. In other words, you know, the, the illegal immigration issue. It could be more nuanced. There could be more you know, two-directional. But because he's made this kind of, I'm going to spend the next two years doing what I want and you know, everyone else can just deal with it, I think the, 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 the politics of it are even worse than they have to be. Even Your historic examples, I think it's going to be even worse. Is that a legitimate theory or am I missing something? No, no, I think it is a good, I mean, a legitimate theory and, a, and an astute, you know, observation about the way the president's behaving. I mean, another way of putting it maybe is he's not behaving like someone who thinks, hey, we've got a majority in this country. We can have a majority in this country. And if I govern well and bring people along and persuade them of what I'm doing, I can leave my, the White House to a, to a successor of my own party who will continue these policies. He's governing like someone who said to himself, I've got two more years. We're going to be blown out in 2016. This is our last chance for a long time to get a lot of stuff done, and I'm desperately going to race to do it. And when you have that attitude, I think it's sort of, A, you end up racing to do all kinds of things that are unpopular. You don't make the case ahead of time. There was no reason the Cuba negotiations had to be so secret. They could have been doing that, something he could have floated and discussed and had surrogates out there making the case for it. I'm not sure he couldn't have the majority of the American public on his side, but but it's a kind of process matter. He almost loses the public on that because it looks like he's just acting unilaterally. And I do think it conveys a general impression to the public of, uh, you know, sort of a, a president who's slightly desperate, uh, acting alone, not trying to build a lasting governing majority. And so I do think that I think that will hurt uh, this, whoever runs as his successor on the Democratic side, presumably Hillary Clinton, and gives Republicans a real, a real opening. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. My pleasure, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.